and I have great pleasure today to welcome Tommy Wilden Jr. to my Club Sports 10 Bit More podcast, a podcast where we interview local coaches on their coaching journey and review where hopefully we can see sport going once we get through COVID. Today we have Tommy Wilden Jr. from the Cavalry. So Tommy, firstly, can you just explain your role? You know, you've been in soccer in Canada for a long time. What is your current role? Yeah, it's... um well, my title is uh, head coach and general manager, but the reality is, is um, whatever it takes. Uh, we have this uh, saying around Spruce Meadows that nobody really holds true to a title because it just defines a certain set of functions. Um, we just literally do whatever it takes. So I guess I, I tell my staff this all the time when we have staff meetings is they'll give great input. You know, Martin Nash is a former Canadian international and a, a very astute uh, coach and tactician, Jordan Santiago, whom you work with at Mount Royal, is another good football brain that came up through the system. A fantastic president, Ian Allison, and um, you know a good sports science team. And uh, essentially, I'm Mr. 51%, uh, a saying I got from Sean Fleming having worked with him uh, at Canada's Under-17 was uh, that I, that's what the title of a head coach is. You, you can get all the opinions in the world, but you get to choose... Uh, the, the final outcome missed the 51%. First question, can you describe your childhood sport experiences? Yeah, it's, um, there was a lot of play. Um, I, 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 I want to say a multi-sport athlete, but I, uh, I definitely sampled a lot of sports. Uh, growing up in England, you know, obviously football was the number one, but uh, played rugby for school teams, played cricket for school teams. Um, didn't really capture the basketball, the North American sports, but a lot of street games. I just remember, you know, we would play for a club side. So before I got into professional academies, um, Plymouth was the first professional academy I got into. I trained twice a week with a club called Prince Rock and the rest of the time was either on the school playground or, you know, at the backfield and you'd use the fence as a goalpost and you'd play, you know, 60 seconds and in or headers and volleys or World Cup. Um, Kirby was another good game. I'm sure you, you remember yeah. what that's like. So lots of unstructured play. Yeah, a lot, really. Uh, I remember, you know, if we were on family holidays playing with my dad or my uncles. Um, so just play. And I can still to this day remember, you know, two friends, that three, four friends, you know, uh, Jamie Hearn, Andy Sargent, David Orchard, Richard Blowers. These are kids that I grew up just, we, we would have the greatest games and the most competitive games with each other. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so quickly, can you tell me who was the greatest influence on your career, either as a player or as a coach? Uh, easy answer for me, my dad, and you've worked with my dad. Um, you know, I, I he was a football player, then he became a coach. He coached me, you know, as a kid, you know, didn't really force me into it because I was a late starter. Um, I think I've played my first team at Cub Scouts at, say, I think U10. Um, and didn't really play for anybody or, or didn't show an appetite for it. So parents didn't force me. Um, my mum was very much about letting him follow his own path and dad was very supportive of it. Uh, but my dad, um, as soon as I had a passion, then he held me accountable to that passion that if you're going to be committed, you are committed. And you can't be, you know, out partying on the weekends if you have a game or training the next day. So he made me accountable and it carried true to then my coaching pathway. And as a coach, you know, I got into that early as a 16-year-old apprentice at Swindon Town when my dad was youth development officer there. And uh, that's how I started on the trail of, um, of coaching too with him. So he really guided you in both coaching and playing? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think he always taught me that um, to be a really good coach, uh, to be involved in the game, you can have longevity. Don't just see it as a playing. He said there's a career after it. You know, as a coach, you can be in it for the rest of your life. And then when coaches retire, they generally become scouts uh, because they still have that drug uh, for the game. Um, so for him, he, he yeah, just just guided me along that and, and and taught me the values of connecting with the people behind it, um, making it an experience and, and challenging. And, and if kids are going to step into it, A, they've got to have fun because they've got to love it. And he was very infectious in that. And B, if you're going to come, you put everything you have into it. And, and they, they were the two things I'd say that I, I definitely picked up from him. Brilliant. Okay, next question is, what do you think is more important for attaining success? Is it graft or is it luck? Some people say luck plays a big part of it. What would you say is the most important component? Uh, both. Luck does. I think luck does end you... Luck creates championships sometimes because you need that little bit of luck at the right time. But I, I definitely think it's the graft to put you in a position to get your lucky bounces and breaks. Um uh, but I think it's hard work first and luck second. I mean, there's a famous saying, you know, the, the harder I train, the, the luckier I get. I think that came from, who was it? It was a golfer, wasn't it? The center, Jack Nicholas. I'm not sure who said it, but no, it's, it's one of my favorites, certainly. Yeah, and I just think you do because the game has a funny way of even out. And I even looked to a recent experience in the 2019 inaugural CPL season and we won a lot of one goal games we won you know last minute winners we beat the Whitecaps with you know two out of our I think five attempts on target um, away from home and we got to the final and you know we had a penalty against us we had somebody sent off um, we had a penalty not given for us in the second leg and then they score on a breakaway um, we ran out of luck um, and just sometimes had a bounce gone here or there suddenly we've won the league and we've won the championship and things are a lot different. But I think you've got to have that hard work first because it puts you in a position to be playing for championship games where the luck may go your way. Fantastic. Um, from a coaching perspective, uh, obviously you're a professional club where wins count. What is your focus? Is it more on development? No, or is it still predominantly on outcome? Yeah, I've been conflicted with this over the years, John. And I think now as I self-reflect as a 41-year-old that's coached every level from, you know, grassroots and helping my son's U4 team uh, play, you know, popcorn or race cars uh, to now playing, you know, the Whitecaps in the Canadian Championship or contesting for the Canadian Premier League title. Um I've coached everything. I've coached most tiers. Um, the only thing I haven't done is what you're, uh, you're good with is, is the disability um, sports. Um, but I think I've, it's allowed me to broaden my horizon. Um, I think at first my ego would have got in the way as a young coach that, you know, it was about how well my team played. That was a reflection of who I was as a coach and what I mean to this. And then when you get embroiled in the pay-to-play football model that you know you're forever every six months your registration's open so your club should be performing so it becomes an attractive proposition yeah and once I took a step back from that I went you know what it's an experience so let's center everything on kids having an experience here so they have you know some great chance so I used to start using in parents meetings at the start of every year I'd walk in and say great I can guarantee your kids are going to become professional and then the room would quiet. I said, but it might not be in football. 
I said, what I'll do is I'll help create the values of the game. That's hard work. It's the roller coaster of emotion that, you know, your wins are great. Your losses are painful. It's and back into the saddle after a bad defeat. Um, it's owning your mistakes. It's making mistakes. It's scoring the winning goal and, and not getting too big about it. I said, it's, they're the life lessons of how to shake hands with an adult and look them in the eye. It's how you put on your club polo and enter a restaurant and leave it tidy. How you leave the soccer center after a game. Is your bench full of bottles and tape or is it clean when you leave? So I said that, you know, for me, these are values that will hold true. If you go and get a scholarship or you go and work in the downtown core or, you know, you become a landscaper, whatever profession it is, you're going to become a professional at something. And the values you're going to learn is going to be through our lessons. So once I shifted that mindset, it became a value um, at Foothills um, that I was the technical director for and then helped shape me now into a professional coach. So certainly the process. The, definitely the process now, but like I said, I think I was caught up in the outcome in my early years, definitely. Yeah. Okay. The next one is, like we were just talking about at the beginning, most champions are driven by an internal drive, a fight, um, a desire mm -hmm. to overcome. What would you say is your fight that has driven you? Failure. Um, I think I've failed in, in many ways. So my journey was about, you know, leaving school as a 16 year old, which would be the equivalent as, you know, going into high school. I became an apprentice at Swindon. Uh, Steve McMahon was the first team manager, great Liverpool. Great. Um, on the back of Glenn Hoddle being there another great. So we had this great footballing ethos at Swindon. So I really had a great upbringing. And when I got to 18, I wasn't the biggest really. Uh, I'm six foot now, but I was, you wouldn't believe it. I was a skinny 18-year-old as a centre-back and had all these ex-Premier League centre-halves in front of me. Gary Elkins was Wimbledon. Brian Kilcline was was Coventry. Mark Seagraves was Bolton. And then there was this scrawny teenager. And Steve McMahon was right that said, look, you're not ready to go into my first team. So that was painful. And, um, and, and I went to Torquay. I went to Yeovil. I had these short-term contracts Um and then my parents sat me down and said, look, you're a good footballer. You're not a great one. Um, you know, you can have a career in the game, but make sure you've got an education. And the PFA had just brought out the sports science and coaching degree. So uh, I get enrolled in that as a 20, 19, 20-year-old. 20 Continued to play semi-pro. Um, ended up going through there. Ended up getting a pro opportunity back over here with Calgary Storm and coming across. And then that team folded. Um so it seemed to be this litter of, of failures and foldings. And then when I started saying, you know what, we've got to bring professional football back to Calgary. People used to say, oh, it'll never happen. It's a hockey town. You know, it's, you know, it's been tried and not happened. And so I felt instead of doing what people said, I had to put um, my energy behind what hadn't been done. And what hadn't been done was creating the pyramid. So I had to start with grassroots. And I remember taking over foothills after Graham Kennedy handed me the keys. And we had 350 kids. And we grew that to 700. Then we grew that to 3,500. And it just came from building the grassroots. So the bigger the base, the higher the pyramid. And I just thought, okay, if I'm going to help change the landscape of football, I've got to do it my way. And um, I've got to do it with the right people that believe the same thing as I do, that we can make a difference on this blank canvas. And so I definitely feel that it was the failures and people say you couldn't then join the PDL because it was an American league. You couldn't afford to do it. You couldn't afford to get that professional football wouldn't work in this country. So every time I heard that, it became a motivation that, you know what, I will, 
I will. Um, so a knock, a knockback, become a positive. Yeah, a stubborn, a stubborn knockback because I think being a Taurus, that's part of our DNA. But I think you've got to stay on the course, and it hurts. Yeah, and I think it hurts, and it, it takes some. You know, we used to call them Black Fridays or something in our way that, you know, you'd have some real disappointments along the way, but you have to swallow it. You have to move on and get up in the morning and you have to say, well, what did I learn from this? And yeah, I think it was definitely the the, the failures that have driven me to where I am now. Brilliant. So looking back on your experience and your development, what was the one major setback that you think that gave you the greatest learning? Um. Yeah. Yeah, a couple. I think rejection, uh, you know, when you're told at 18 because the life is in front of you and I'd played for the reserves, I'd scored, you know, Stephen Marlon said to me, you know, keep playing like that. This is a 16-year-old. Keep playing like that. You'll be on my first team. And we had, you know, players that went on to play in the Prem, like uh, Kevin Horlock was part of that. Shea Given was part of that team. Um, and I think it worlds at my feet. And then to be told you're not big enough or not good enough to go into my first team that, that hurt. And then you then have to get into other clubs and have to fight your way. And then you go on all these trials and the people tell you, well, you know what, you're not what we're looking for because I was going in as a ball playing center back or like to think I was. Um, and they maybe wanted a six foot three, you know, hammer that wanted to be a dad that protected the net and, and, and just defended first. So, I think when you have all that, that, that for me was a, was a pivotal time in my life um, that turned me. I think when... What about the coaching Calgary, side? What about the coaching on, side? Yeah, on, on the coaching side, yeah, there was lots of things. I think I got a lot of things wrong, John. Um, I, I always think now I learned a lot through when you do work in a pay-to-play system, it is a business. And when you embrace that businesses communicate and it's not about your opinion, as a coach. So I remember early in my coaching career, I think I was a, an 87 boys team. I remember them now. And um, it was my first year and I was about to go and do my UEFA B license in England. And I passed on the keys to this, what I thought was just an indoor tournament to Tyrone Irons, my assistant and came back. We were meant to have won it, finished third. And I had this litter of emails that parents were just mad about I'd abandoned the boys, you know, they looked to me as a, as a, as a leader and I just didn't communicate anything. And once I got past my emotion of my first input was defend while well, I was doing this or I was doing that, listen to what their problem was. I realized it was my communication skills. I had not emphasized the why I was leaving to better myself for the outdoor game, for, for my own professional development. It was an opportunity I couldn't refuse. I had planned for my assistant coach. I saw this as a just a warm-up tournament because we'd won the leagues, had done that. Wherever we finished was, you know, trying to empower the players. And once I'd learned that, it just gave me a valuable lesson in that it's not about X's and O's. Yeah. It's about how you communicate to people and tell them the why to show them the way. And I, I remember that to this day now, because even now with the professionals and we have a decision to make or whether I have a start at 11 to the name, I always bring in the players um, that aren't in the 11 and I tell them why. And they can have an opportunity to disagree or argue their point. I say, I appreciate that. I'm just telling you why we've, made, we've arrived at this. And it helped me massively. It's an interesting one because I've said in the recent uh, podcast about the different perspective, the parents are always here and now. Mm -hmm. And as, even as a young coach, yeah. I was more on the development and where we're going. But I know as a parent watching my own children playing soccer and hockey, 
I was always watching that game and the clock mm-hmm. and seeing what my son was about. Mm-hmm. And I think as, as a young coach coming in, that's my advice to them is to get the parents, all the players on the same page as you. That communication piece is vital. I've got a soon-to-be 11-year-old son. He's 11 next month. I just watched him in an inter-squad game today and sat there out of the way. You know, don't say anything from the sidelines. I have to be the parent that I used to preach to is just let it be your son's experience. And I do the same thing um, with him in the car. Do you have fun? You know, what did you learn? How would you make it better? And and I always tell him, I loved watching you play today, son. And uh, I keep it very simple because I could literally, listen, if you did this run, I'll do that. You should have shot the hill. You should have done that. Poor kid will go turn around to me and go, he'd stop enjoying the game. So I'm learning a lesson now, even as a parent of a kid that plays, I want it to be his journey. So as long as you're ever open to it, yeah. Yeah, an interesting one. Even with my 20-year-old, um, I still ask, when he asks me, I still ask him whether he wants to know as a parent or as a coach. <laughs> I to yeah. give the answer as a parent because, like you say, I love watching you play. I love seeing him play with a smile. So, yeah, yeah looking back then on your early, co- when you came into coaching, that was one of the experiences. Is there anything else that you would change on the, the coaching pathway? Because I know during COVID, I've looked back on my coaching career and when we start out, we're normally doing just coach education courses that teach us how to coach the game and not really the other areas, like the communication with players and how to support their needs. Yeah. So, I, I always thought when we did, uh, I, did my, I did my UEFA A and I've done my CSAA license in the last, what, probably last three to five years. Um, and the, the, one, the one topic, you know, you've got all these different topics, whether it's field or presentations, the one, there's two that stand out. And it was from Dick Bate, who you know very well. He's, an absolute, he's, he's like the Gandalf of football, isn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, what an incredible human being, what an incredible coach educator. He would make me goosebumps when I just think of him. Um, and John Herdman on the CSA. And both of them leveled in on the art of communication. And uh, if I was to really encourage now, and like my lesson there, what I learned from the, 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 the parents that day was um, – it's not what you know, it's what you can get your players to understand. You know, I, I would never profess to even be the best coach in Calgary because I'm sure there's out there that's way better than me. Um, but I listen to my players. I try to communicate. Um, sometimes I go over boil and let my emotions do my talking. And sometimes I'm, you know, bang on point with my motivational speeches. Uh, but it's the art of communication. So anyone there that I, I would say that needs to learn, I would layer it in with, how do you get your message across? So now I'm in an environment where I've got some Spanish speaking players. You know, we live in a bilingual country where there's some French speaking players. I wish, or that's probably still, it's I wish, but I, I, I still plan to, is uh, learn more Spanish, uh, learn more French. So the things I can say in my native tongue, I can get across to those. So there's no gray areas. Um, I I would even go one further that, you know, for these up and coming coaches now, how is the game evolving? You know, there's more science. So there's GPS data. What does that mean? Where is it going? Uh, Now, if you look at the rules of the game, if this five sub rule takes on, what implications does that have for the game? Well, it's going to become more powerful. So are we creating more powerful players? And if so, what data do we need? 
is that going to then lose some of the skill base because it's almost not roll on, roll off like hockey or indoor football, but you know, what implications do that have? And then the video analysis, I think that's an art that we haven't really developed that well yet, especially in Alberta. I think we need to be better at it and offer courses on it because that's how you get your message across through visuals. There's visual learners, there's kinesthetic learners, there's verbal, there's lots of different learners. So that would be my advice is learn the multifaceted way to communicate and get your message over. So explore and develop your skills on all the tools that are available to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, what is your personal coaching goal for the future? I'd love to coach in a World Cup one day. I think it's um, the FIFA World Cup is the highest accolade of everything. You think back to your childhood memories and you know your most recent ones that you circle in the calendar is the World Cup. It's the highest level of the game in the world. We've got you know 2026. We're going to be fortunate in Canada that you know games will be played on our shores um, as well as US and, and Mexico. So. For me, that experience to know what the very best are doing with all the eyes watching, um, how they create big moments and big opportunities, how you know how they get over suffering and losing the first group game, but able to respond or not respond. Uh, I'd love that opportunity to just soak it in. So that would be for Canada or England? <laughs> Whoever comes in first. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put that one in there. Um, yeah, to, E- equally proud to uh, to represent either. Absolutely. Okay. Last question. If you if you had the magic wand, and like I say, we've been through, and we're still going through unprecedented times with COVID. Sports going to be different. You know, we're still not getting crowds back at stadiums. What is the one change you would like to see in sports to advance opportunities and stuff? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Um, I'm not sure I've taken with this VAR. I think the controversy of it, I think it creates a stoppage. So I remember listening to a great podcast from Eddie Jones, the England rugby coach that talked about these stoppages in play allow you know some of the not so fit players to respond. So it then becomes a power sport. So if you're having three minutes, five minutes to review a pentacle, then everybody's going to be fresh again to go again. Um, I think games are created in mistakes, um, in fatigue and uh, and and we lose that. I think when you have these five subs, I, I also think that potentially that could create a power-driven sport and lose the, you know, the Johan Cruyffs of this world, the Glenn Hoddles, the Platinis of old, the Maradonas that you know played when there wasn't many subs, so they you know found space and the speed of the game was different. Now, you know, we're going to do a little bit like hockey where it becomes a power sport. Um, so we lose that endurance and that even the mental side of overcoming adversity. You know, if you've got breaks, it's like you're saying in the, in the soccer at the moment, you have two water breaks to your playing quarters at the moment. Yeah, so imagine in a boxing match, I know they get there, the, the bell rings after, what, three to five minutes of what it is and they have a refresh and go, but the fatigue sets in. Imagine after the sixth round, you get to sub in the boxer. I know, yeah. <laughs> imagine that, right? It changes the outcome of the game because now it's about whether you're, you're, you're counter-punching, whether you're, 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 you're going on the offense. Um, and if you don't score on the offense and you don't land that punch, then you're going to fatigue. So, um yeah, I wonder where we're going with this with, with this modern day game. Uh, I think that's where I, I would change it. For me, on the on the youth side, uh, especially now having worked so much in Calgary, is um, is games is game time. I think I look at 
an outdoor game. Uh, look at, you know, uh, it always baffled me that we play six months indoors here because of the weather and three months outdoors, which is the game. And then when we're in indoor, we're off and on. So if it's futsal, which I was a big proponent in trying to bring it because I think it's a fabulous game, but you're playing with outdoor rosters. I always liked the idea of saying, right, here's your futsal roster. So there's five players on, including your keeper. So you've got a max of nine players on this side. And you got if you've got nine players there, you've got a training game, so you can always do that. So you've got 18 players in there. But now if I'm playing against your team, John, and you say, right, the A team is going to play 20 and 20 and the B team is going to play right after 20 and 20. I know it comes down to logistics and finances. If we could find a way where now the kids are playing, it goes back to that unstructured play. For me, if I could get them game time, lose that little bit of structure so they're just playing, I think that would, you know, we would create better players because they solve a lot more problems than just cuts and turns at the cones. No, I, I worry with the big rosters. It's always been an issue of mine. I know people have said, you know, being coming from England, you never played indoor soccer, but we played five a side with 10 guys. Yeah. An hour. yeah. And yeah. it was fantastic. You would work for an hour and you'd come off sweating. So yeah. I, for me, I'd sooner, again, being, now being an endurance athlete, I'd sooner go in and play and not have those breaks. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right, I would sooner see more smaller games on a field you know, like at your facility, you get more fields going and the kids playing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Preferred training model that we advocate, no subs, the kids just play. Yeah. And that's yeah. where they learn. So yeah, no, I'd love to see that. I, I remember probably three years ago, um, there was two lads of the 2004 born, uh, two terrific players, Max Pipegrass and, and Skylar Rogers. I think they're going to be, I think they've been on the Alberta teams, but I think they're going to be terrific footballers. But we sent them across to... Uh, Wayne Cleverley had sorted them in at Sheffield United and they played against Manchester United. So I think at the time, I'd, I'd want to say they were U-12s when they went over. So they're playing 8v8. And when they got there, they, they played one roster, exactly that, and they had two pitches adjacent to each other. So Manchester United put their, you know, nine players out for, eight players out for there and the other eight. So they only had 16 players. Brilliant. Sheffield United did the same. There was no subs. But then a kid rolls his ankle get sore so they agreed we're going to play with a man down because it's a value how do we play a man less what problem didn't record any of the scores because they know what those scores were yeah. but you know, Sheffield United played a seven man against Manchester United's eight man and had a challenge by the coaches who were brilliant and I remember just thinking that's how we've got to play the catch up in Canada so if ever we're going to keep competing at 2026 and creating more and more players I'm sure Alfonso Davies never left the field when he played in Edmonton. Yeah. I don't think he would have rotated out like what we do here. Yeah. So are we losing the opportunity to perform or just play and make mistakes and try things and just be out there if, if, and know how to handle their fatigue? So in a sense, it comes back to what you said at the beginning, where when we started out, we were about outcome because that's the business mm. model rather than mm. the process and the learning that yeah. goes on through winning and losing games. Yeah, and, and, and I understand the why to the outcome because I know now a lot of clubs have facilities to pay, staff to pay, livelihoods to cover. So I, I get that bit too. There has to be some type of happy medium where if there are more facilities there, then, you know, like back home, you'd have this youth club, that youth club that would provide game day fields. And yeah. maybe if you start saying, yeah, you know what, have whatever rosters you want within your ethos, here's the format that we want. Make sure that you got a maximum one sub, um, but you have to provide your own home field for this age group. Yeah, I'm hoping that might come with the youth league that's starting up. Yeah. We'll see how that evolves. I know that um, 
they've looked at the model of the academies back home. So hopefully, you know, the coaches within that can get away from trying to be the best Alberta Youth Soccer League team and just develop players because at the ages they're starting at, it's, it's about development. Oh, it is. And I think we've got a fantastic shining light now with Alfonso Davies that is true to a lot of Albertans because of the pathway he's gone. And You look at Jonathan David as well, another terrific young player coming up. But there's lots of good Canadian players out there from Atiba Hutchinson, Junior Hoyler, Scott Arfield. So there's a trail there. And I think now we've got our own league they can see tangible people like Marco Carducci, Dominic Zator, Elijah Adekubi, you know, these kids that are local, that are playing in front of crowds, you know, Joel Waterman getting bought by Montreal. I think now we've got a pathway that once this Alberta Youth League comes out, now suddenly you're segmenting exactly what we would look for as a professional club, myself and Jeff Paulus at FC Edmonton. You know what, on a weekend off, we would possibly be there or our staff would be there watching these kids because now the clubs are doing a great job of developing. And then the top end 15, 16 year olds, they'll be training with the U20s of our team or the first team. And what a great pathway. It's one, it's interesting. It's one of the things that Tosh from Everton said on a camp I'd done last year. And he asked the boys how many of them want to be professional soccer players, and they all wanted to be. And then he asked how many have been to watch FC Edmonton, and not many had. And he said, mm-hmm you're taking a rung out the ladder. And, you know, I know we've only had the one season. Now we're in a bit of mm-hmm. a stalemate waiting for COVID. But that's one thing that I'd encourage is that in order to grow the game here, we also need, as well as players, we need support. So again, you know, due to my the nature of my work, I only got down to a couple of games with you guys mm-hmm. last year. And we need to make the games more accessible. We need to get the supporters mm-hmm. there to, to watch the games, you know. And I'm, I'm sure you're the same. I was the same. My son used to come with me five and six and watch as many games as yeah, he could. Yeah. And he learned just by watching games. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, that's the other big piece that's missing with a lot of youth players is they don't get the opportunity to go and watch. You can't see it properly on the, on the TV. Yeah. So whether it's the Cavalry or uh, youth sport, we've got, we got to get create this culture of watching. I, I disagree. I'll give you this quote because it, it got into a, a, an article with the league was... Um, uh, there was a kid that came with his dad to watch one of our training sessions from afar and the players went over just because they seen this kid we, we haven't seen anybody we haven't seen any fans or anything the kid was behind the fence and they could see it was young so, you know, yeah 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 Bielsa's boy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Nick Ledgewood took a few players over to say hello and they were talking and you know who's your favourite team well Cavalry because he had his Cavalry hat on and great and you know he said uh, you know you like Lionel Messi and the kid looked at him blankly and yeah, I said, would well, you know Lionel Messi? He's like, no. He said, well, who, who's your favourite player? He went, Marco Carducci. Fantastic. And then that was it. For all the players to come back and tell me, you could see the smiles on their face. And that just shows what this league could do for the next generation of players as we lead to the 2026 World Cup and beyond. Is now we've got tangible homegrown heroes in front of them that they can, they can see and touch. Absolutely. So now, yeah, well, I'm going to wrap up there. So thank you so much, Tommy, for taking the time to meet with me today. It's been a great pleasure, like I say, seeing your journey and your development over the last 12 years I've been in Canada. I wish both you and the club and generally the sport of soccer in Canada many more happy years of growth and development. In the meantime, I look forward to seeing everyone again in the near future. And please let me know if there's any special coaches out there you'd like to see reviewed and to go through and look at their journey in terms of developing and implementing mental skills in their coaching. 
Thank you, stay safe, and let's keep flattening this curve.